Hi, everybody. Just a message to let you know that there is a trigger warning on this episode regarding PTSD. It hit him and he rolled the boat. He'd almost broken his arm. A piece of a door broke and had got lodged a massive splinter in one of his, in his shoulder, I think it was, or his forearm. Um, his mast had broke. Uh, his wind generator broke. And he was just wandering, floating around a, a channel. So, you know, when we got the job to go get him, we knew that he was in dire straits, I suppose. You know, um, a boat wasn't going out to get him. It would have been way too dangerous. So we were it. And, you know, like I said, we are the res- uh, their combating um, authority for search and rescue. Um, and I happen to be on the police helicopter doing search and rescue tasks that day. Today's guest joined the Victorian Police at the age of 18 and served 34 years in policing with most of his time in the Victorian Police Air Wing. He was awarded a bravery medal for a particularly difficult rescue out to sea which saw him lose interest in being in the Air Wing. He eventually joined the Australian Federal Police and served overseas, then transferred to an investigation role focusing on general crime, people smuggling operations and counter-terrorism. He has authored 10 Feet Tall and Not Quite Bulletproof about his story. Episode 97, Cameron Hardiman. Welcome to One Moment, Please the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Yep, not a problem. Okay. All right. Well, we can Feeling give it a whirl. <laughs> what did you say? I said, fill your boots, whatever you want. I don't think I've ever heard that expression before. Haven't you? Oh, okay. Is that an age thing? Uh, <laughs> no, I I don't know. I don't know where I've got that from. I've got a few classics that I've been using okay. for years and years. I think I got them oh. from old school coppers. That's good. And when I, I say them, it. people go, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I have the same thing, but that's just because I'm weird and eccentric, so it's fine. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> You yeah. don't have that issue. You just got random sayings that you picked up from other people. Um, yeah, that's, tr- that's true. I'm, I'm weird too, but I've got a diagnosis <laughs> and I'm not sure. I don't think you have. So can they just diagnose weird? I don't think yeah, they can diagnose right. weird. Yeah. I laugh because... I we're in as you know, way, thank God. Well, this is true. As you know, um, we're van laughing around Australia. We're just going to start the podcast, by the way. Um, we're van laughing yeah. around Australia, and I do say to Andrew that I'm his, ent- which is my husband, that I'm his entertainment because some of the stuff you end up doing on the road trips when there's nothing else to do is really quite extraordinary. I never thought that I'd be playing um, in my 30s. I I'm, in, I'm envious. Sure. I really am. Yeah. Do you know, it's one of the things that everybody <laughs> says to me that I mention it too, and obviously I have to tell the guests because we have to sort of schedule it around and you can tell that I'm in a van and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I send you videos of gorgeous beaches to make you jealous. Um, but, <laughs> but everybody that I've mentioned it to has said, oh, I'm jealous. I wish I could be doing it. And my response is, well, you two could. And everybody yeah. can. You've just got to make the decision. Well, that's true. And, I, you know, you just got to get off your ass and do it. Um and, you know, that's the hard bit. Well, we were very people. fortunate because post we made the decision to sell up because of obviously all the 
events in Melbourne. Yep. And then the first week of, so their first open for the property was on a Saturday and that same Monday of the same week, my husband got a, you've been made redundant conversation. Yep. So my first response to that is let's get a van and go around Australia. So when are we not going to be tethered by a mortgage and a job? So we did. Yeah. 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 It's perfect. Perfect. But we won't, we won't go back to Melbourne now. Oh, I don't blame you. If it wasn't for the kids in school, I'd be in Noosa. Yeah. Yeah, we're recording. I just thought I'd no. remind you. <laughs> no, and that's fine. You can send that to Dan Andrews too. <laughs> I think I think all the good people uh, got out. So um, that's for that's oh, for what sure. What are you trying all... to say? <laughs> what are you trying to say? Well, you're I'm one of the few. Here. You're one of the few that are still there. Well, <laughs> trust me, I would go good... if I wasn't tethered with the kids. You you can't, you um, are they I'd at an up... age where you can't pull them out of school? Well, I grew up as a RAF brat, so I did. I, by the time I did year nine in high school, I've been. I was on my fourth high school. Yeah. So I refused to pull them out of high school, and they're both in high school. So. Mm. Yeah. I'll, well, I'll post. Wait. Post um, interview, I'll have a conversation with you about your feelings about the militarization and politicization of the uh, police force during the lockdowns in Victoria, but we'll have that conversation offline. Yeah, <laughs> I've, got, I've got my views. I've got my views. Yeah, so do I. Yes. Anyway, so okay. <laughs> mm. let's let's not get us uh, okay, um, let's sued from a very litigious um, uh, political <laughs> party. Um, yeah, okay. Anyway, <laughs> so I, you've, you're an author. An accomplished author, 10 Feet Tall and Not Quite Bulletproof is your book that you've written. Um, and I'm I'm looking, I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to reading it, but it's about your time in the police force and uh, PTSD, I believe. Yes, yes. Accomplished, I'm not so sure. I'm you an accidental author. Like, I say myself I'm an accidental author. Uh, how are you accidental? Well, I never intended to write a book. Right. And it wasn't until a friend of mine talked me into it that I actually decided to get it published. And even still, I sort of question the decision. Um, why did you? Why do you question it? Uh, when you, you sort of write a book about your life story and your career in PTSD, it's sort of like putting it all out there. And I'm, I'm quite a reasonably big private person um and to have that out there was a big decision to make um and if it wasn't for my friend talking me into it and saying you know it could help people and um you know when i first got diagnosed with ptsd i was searching for books and there weren't any out there that weren't american or military mm. so i couldn't find a book written by a copper here in Australia, apart from one, which is The Cost of Bravery by Alan Sparks. And I mm. read that and I thought, wow, why aren't there more books like this for people to me, for me to read? And then when my friend, the author, talked me into um, seeking publishing, she said, well, that's exactly why you need to publish it, is because there needs to be more books for people like me to read. So I did. Did you? I, Did you feel a sense of relief that um, you didn't have to hide? Like if it was all out there, then you didn't have to hide anything? At that time, no. 
But now probably mm. yes, because I talk about it a lot more freely now because of the book than what I did before the book was published. I'm happy mm. to talk about absolutely anything now in relation to mental health and PTSD. But at the time, mm. I while I wrote the book, I was undergoing um, therapy for starters. So I was still learning as much as I could about PTSD and how to get out of bed in the morning um, while I was writing these memoirs, I suppose. But now that it's out, and I've done podcasts and I've done interviews and people have sent me messages and I talk a lot about mental health, PTSD in particular, it's becoming easier to live with the fact that I've got a book out there that talks about some, you know, um, personal stuff. So it's getting easier. Well, let's talk about some of the personal stuff um, yep. that contributed to you writing the book. You joined the police force in 1985. Yes. And then, well, first of all, why did you want to join the cop, like the coppers? Why did you become a copper? Um, I've always said that when I left school, I didn't do too well because I, I hated school. But, um. And I had roughly 12, 18 months off. I'd go to the beach and surf and hang around and play pinball machines and um, do all that stuff that 18-year-olds do. And it got to the, the time where I thought, well, I've got to do something. And I saw this TV commercial that was really, really looked cool um, and decided to apply. But... Secretly, I suppose, and subconsciously, my father was a police officer in the RAF for the Royal Australian Air Force. So it was almost military police. part destiny. Yeah, military police, part destiny, part that looks really exciting. Um, and so my father spent uh, 35, 40 years in a uniform of some sort, sort whether it was his army career first and then the RAF career, which was 22 years, and then he was a prison officer for 15. So there was always uniforms around the house. So I suppose at the end of the day that even though I wanted to get away from surfing and actually get a job and earn some money, I was probably destined to do it anyway. And it turns out my younger brother ended up being a prison officer for 15 years as well. So I sort of, um, when you look at it back at it, you think, well, no wonder. Being a prison officer would be a hard gig as well. Uh, you mm. couldn't pay me enough money to do that. Well, you, you're putting them in there for him. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a story associated with that. I might tell that later when I went to visit my brother in um, the maximum security prison down here and ran into a couple of people that I knew quite well. Oh no, I hope you didn't. I hope you didn't um, let on that you he was your he was your brother. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it wouldn't have worried him, but it certainly worried me. <laughs> so not content with just being a um a general police force when you first joined, you ended up in the drug trafficking, illegal gambling and stolen vehicle squad. So no fun yeah. police automatically <laughs> in eighty seven. Yeah, All the good it, stuff out off the table. I know. Well, it was like a a local unit that worked on illegal gambling and stuff like that. Illegal gambling was our concentration. That's where we spent most of our time. But it was sort of weird because in my time off after school, I used to go to an illegal gambling den and play pinball machines out the back 
while these old um, Turkish and Greek gentlemen used to sit there and um, illegally gamble <laughs> in the front room. Wow. Uh, so it was a bit strange um, that I ended up doing that. And I did it for about 12 months and um, it was a real eye-opener to me. I mean, I think I was 19 years old um, and I was driving around in a plain police car with scruffy clothes and long hair and um, jumping fences and breaking into houses with warrants. It was just absolute. It was a, a young kid's life. It really was. It was you sort of grow up thinking Having that would be really cool to do it. And I, I did it, I suppose. It was great. Well, very early on in your, I mean, the people that I've spoken to, usually it's sort of, you know, many years down the track that they start um, in those sorts of units. So interesting that you're only two years in and you, you found yourself there. Why did you end up moving on from there? Oh, I was only a, it was, that was only a 12-month posting. I think I did just over 12 months would rotate in and out. Um, and if I had stayed at the station or in uniform, I probably would have rotated it back in again. Um, it's just that I'd, That's I'd sort of... Why yeah. do they rotate you out? But also, it was a local unit, so I mean, I understand that like the bigger gambling, illegal gambling or drug squads are detectives and they're in town in the head office um, at that stage. And then each sort of local area had a support unit that would do it as well at a lower sort of local level. And that's where I went is to do the drugs at a lower level. So it was more marijuana growers and marijuana sellers, not the big heavy um, drugs that the drug squad would be using. Um, for cocaine and on. the heroin and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and the illegal gambling was small gambling houses. It wasn't big time stuff. Um, okay. So it was all local, just centred around the district that I happened to work in. So you rotated out from that after 12 months. What did you go into? I went back to uniform, um, uh-huh. back to a uniform station, and I uh, transferred station to get to a busier station than where I was. So I ended up, after about three or four years in, I ended up at St Albans, which was I suppose at the tunnels outer western suburbs. Yeah, it was it was a real melting pot of cultures. Um and you know, just a lot of domestic violence, uh, you know, a heap of domestic violence, a lot of alcohol, um, a lot of young kids that were quite unruly and hanging around the streets creating fights. And I got a bit of taste of that that sort of area when I was working in the plain clothes. So I knew exactly what I was getting for in, into, so I decided to transfer to the uniform section there um, and did about three years or four years there. Um, interestingly enough, I think the police station actually closed after I left and they moved it a couple of suburbs. And the funeral director, the funeral directing house, actually took over the police station, which no. you think, okay, the coppers move in, so they're out, so the funeral home moves in. It was... I thought I thought, well, that's a bit um ominous. Grim, yeah. You yeah. ended up in ninety two you ended up in the police air wing unit. Had you yep. always wanted to go into the air wing unit? Um look, I always had an interest in helicopters and aviation since I was a kid. Mm. Um 
I mean, like my dad was a police officer, but he was a police officer in the RAF, and any RAF brat out there would know that the RAF put on the best air, air displays and Christmas parties back in the 70s and early 80s. And so I fell in love with helicopters there. Um, and back in the mid-70s, helicopters were part of the RAF and not the Army. Um, mm. So I always had that in the back of my mind. I didn't realise when I first got in the police force that they actually had a uh, three helicopters. They were operating three helicopters and they had a full crew out there doing police work and air ambulance work. And when I realised that, I thought, well, that's that's where I want to go. And that's what I did. I just, um, everything I did in uniform, instead of going along the normal trajectory path, path of being, say, a detective or getting promotion, I decided that I'll go and try and get in the air wing and work on helicopters. And it took a little while, um, but eventually got there in 92, or September 92. It's interesting that you created, like you being a, a RAF brat, created such a love for helicopters because a lot of people would assume that being a military a son of a military officer or I'm assuming he was an officer military personnel um and having to move around so frequently that that would be very um disruptive to you and therefore that could cause a resentment towards anything related to your dad's sort of line to work, but you've, you've sort of leaned into it. Yeah, well, one of the hardest things about being a RAF brat or being a military kid is the moving, and I didn't like mm. it. And that's probably why I wasn't – not only uh, I didn't like school, I wasn't very good at it, but I was always moving. And I'd, I'd you know, been uh, – I might have said before um, in the conversation off air that by the time I did year nine, I was at my fifth high or fourth high school, so I didn't like that part of it, but I certainly did like the aviation part of it. And because I joined Victoria Police Force, there was no moving around interstate anymore. I was here for good. And when I found out they had like a helicopter section, I had the best of both worlds. Well, um, I could go what, and work what, in a helicopter and not have to move. Well, tell me what that entailed, what would be a typical day, because it's very different. I've spoken to people that are... Um, ex-detectives, ex-homicide, yep. ex-undercover, um, but I've never chatted to somebody from the air wing. So what would be a typical day in the air wing unit? Ours, our air wing was, I'm not sure who, who actually which police force had the first air wing, whether it was New South Wales or us. So ours, we started in about 1978 to 1979. Uh, Victoria Police got their first helicopter. Um, I got there in 92, and by that time, that one police helicopter had become free. We also had um, a, an agreement with the ambulance service to operate one of them as an air ambulance, and also the controlling or combating authority for search and rescue in most states, and in fact, I'll probably say all states, is the police force. So therefore, they had an obligation for search and rescue. So all three helicopters that we operated um, had the ability to do police work, air ambulance work, and search and rescue. And the common crews would be a police pilot, a police air observer, which is um, what I did. And depending on what work or role you're performing, whether you took another police officer or 
a paramedic. So for us, and I don't think any other police force in the country was doing that air ambulance role. So for me, a normal day would have been um, if I was walked into work and found I was rostered on the police helicopter, there would be a list of jobs that we might have to do. But also we would be on response to respond to any job where a ground unit needed help. It might have been an armed robbery, a stolen car, a car pursuit or um, a missing person, um, absolutely anything. And there also, because of the responsibility to search and rescue, we would get called to any search and rescue job that popped up, whether that be someone missing in the bush or um, a boat or an aircraft missing or something like that. Then the air ambulance work, if I was rostered on that, I would work with a paramedic. Um, We'd go to uh, any sort of incident where the ambulance service decided that the person wasn't probably going to survive a road trip into the nearest hospital, so we would get called and take them to one of um, a few hospitals around uh, the city that had helipads so we can get them there quicker. And most of the time that was probably um, a car accident. So um, that was it. That was the three roles that we concentrated on. And any any particular day you could do either or. Um, The only sort of consistent one would be a night shift where we would go in and work nights for one week and we'd be on an air ambulance for all those those seven nights um, responding to jobs and in between doing whatever job come up. I hope that covered everything. Well, I think it has covered everything in terms of the job scope. I mean, it sounds very broad. If you... Could you sort of say, look, I, I'd want to do more search and rescue stuff or I like the air ambulance stuff or but could you sort of put your hand up and say, look, can I sort of be more in this area and I don't want to do that or is it just willy-nilly oh, no, you get assigned like multi-role. it? Uh, it's sort of the pilots, well, as you understand, the pilots fly the aircraft. So it doesn't matter what role that they do. They're still flying the same aircraft, going to the same places. Once mm. you know, once you get to the higher level of training and you're qualified, which took about for an air observer like myself, it usually took about two years um, to get all your qualifications up. So it wasn't a matter of saying like I'd rather do the air ambulance or rather do search and rescue because the amount of money that you spend on getting the skills and the qualifications, they'd want you to use them. So if you said, I only want to do police work and I don't want to search to rescue, there's a lot of time and money that goes into getting you the right qualifications to do search and rescue work. So it wasn't something you could say, look, I don't want to do that. Um, you know, it was almost mandatory that you will because you have the skills and you trained at them. So you've got to, you've got to go and use them, really. So you've... Um, You've identified that you are an air observer. So are you winching actually yourself down to rescue people? Are you that person or are you still staying in the helicopter watching them do that? No, you do both. So as an air observer um, in the police search and rescue role, uh, you could either be the person on the wire or the person operating the winch that Mm. remains in the helicopter. Whereas if you're working the air ambulance, um, you'd have to be the person operating the winch because the paramedic would be on the wire. 
Yeah. So you had to be the jack of all trades. How fun was it though, winching down in the training? Well, um, not when someone's life's on the line, like just training, like the fun stuff. Oh uh, yeah, it's fun, but there's there's you know it's quite like I remember saying to a friend one day, it's quite a lonely spot hanging on that wire um, because you've absolutely got no control over what happens. So once you leave the confines of that helicopter and you're hanging on a five millimeter piece of steel table, that's it's sort of a really lonely place. <laughs> um, you start hearing things, you start feeling things, and you think, okay, I'm not comfortable here. Hurry up, get this over and done with. Um, really? So the I fear kicks in? I, like I don't a... think I ever got. I don't think I ever got really comfortable with it. Wow, that's interesting. But, I thought that um, you would get comfy. Yeah, I think I think the trip away from the helicopter down to the ground is always the nervous one. Um, depending on what you have to do, and the trip back up the helicopter is full of relief, thinking, "Yeah, okay, it's over now." Um, What's the please most... don't let anything go wrong. What's the most memorable event or rescue or, I don't know, whatever operation that you're involved in in that unit? Oh, there's so many. Really? There's absolutely hundreds of them. Um, The most memorable rescue was a lone sailor off a sail, which is um, from Victoria, so you know where sail is, but it's basically it was offshore, so it was about 65 miles out into Bass Strait. And but wasn't he was that sailing after around you joined, the world. Wasn't that after you joined the AFP? No, no, it was just before, oh. actually. I, I left I left that year. So that, that, that winch was in February 2005, and I resigned mm-hmm. on from Victoria Police and went to the AFP in September that year. Okay. Well, we'll get back to the AFP. Yep. Yeah. So So, that was probably um, the most memorable one. You got a a silver medal for bravery for that one. Yeah, Royal Humane Society gave me a silver medal for bravery, which is a a big pat on the back. Um, So, I mean, it's an incredible pat on the back. Was it just because the weather conditions were so horrific? Is that why he called for assistance? Well, he was, believe it or not, he was 71 years old from memory, and he was an experienced sailor. Um, he sort of, from memory, after talking to him, because, he, well, he was a, an Englishman living in Canada and decided to make himself a yacht and sail around the world. So he had left New Zealand, and on the way across the Tasman, his uh, motor stopped because he was motoring some of the way. So he had to go on to sail, and he had the opportunity opportunity to turn back or continue on to Melbourne, which is where his sister lived. So he decided to continue on. And I think he was a day into Bass Strait when a storm hit and no one really saw this one coming. It was a massive storm um, with a lot of rain as well, a lot of flooding. So a lot of suburbs around Melbourne got flooded. I think the Spirit of Tassie, the um, Ferry that goes got portholes broken and had to limp back to Melbourne. So it was a really crappy day that no one sort of expected, um, and he didn't either. So he had actually had no choice. He couldn't head for land or anywhere that was sheltered, and he certainly couldn't head back towards New Zealand. So he sort of got stuck right in the middle of it, and it hit him, and he rolled the boat. He'd 
um, almost broken his arm, a piece of a door broken, had got lodged massive splinter in one of his, in his shoulder, I think it was, or his forearm. Um, his mast had broke, uh, his wind generator broke, and he was just wandering, floating around a, a channel. So, you know, when we got the job to go get him, we knew that he was in dire straits, I suppose. You know, um, a boat wasn't going out to get him. It would have been way too dangerous. So we were it. And, you know, like I said, we are the uh, they're combating um, authority for search and rescue. Um, and I happen to be on the police helicopter doing search and rescue tasks that day. So when you hear that you've got to go out to Bass Strait in the middle of this storm, what's the first thought? <laughs> uh, apart from shit. <laughs> Uh, I remember. I remember we, when we got the job. We were, I was searching for what we thought was a kid who had fallen off a bridge in a flooded creek in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And we were sort of. I was talking to the pilot, and we we're thinking that it might have been um, a false alarm, like someone just saw a kid standing on the bridge and then glanced away, looked back, and the kid wasn't there because we never found any kid and no one reported anyone missing. So we think it was just a dodgy job. But we got the call to come back to the office because um, of this guy on the yacht. And I remember looking over towards, in a direction, seeing this massive dark grey cloud sitting just above the horizon and looking at the pilot thinking, hell, that looks um, that looks different, I suppose. It looked like crap. And I remember landing at the Essendon Airport out of our office about to get a briefing, and the pilot turned to me and said, I've seen weather like this before, Ken. And what he was talking about was five years earlier, we did a similar, I did a similar winch onto a yacht where a guy had been hit by a storm and he'd fallen overboard and drowned. And I got winched oh, on God. the yacht to do CPR on that gentleman. And so, you know, it just happened to be the exact same pilot five years later, almost of the day, that we get another job in a really shitty storm. Um, yeah, so oh, look, we knew what we're getting into. Um, but typical copper's fashion that every copper out there says, I'll give a, a job a crack at least once. So it was a matter of going out there and having a look and seeing what we could do, I suppose, more than. Uh, well, I don't think there's really an option of not to do it. So you obviously rescued him because you got the bravery medal. Yes, um, we got him off eventually. Um, yeah, without not without incident, but um, I think the whole winch process took about three minutes from memory, but it felt like about an hour to me. Yeah. Yeah, well, I can imagine if you're on, on the bottom of that cable swinging around in the wind. Um, you mentioned something there that I just want to touch on, Cameron. You you mentioned, obviously, another um, event where you went and you were doing CPR on a guy and on a yacht. I'm not sure if he made it or not. No, you're he didn't. Doing... No, he didn't survive that guy. Okay. You're doing a lot of the air wing. You're, you're doing search and rescue. Um, so people, I mean, if you're calling out a helicopter, die straights. Um, yep. you're doing the air ambulance as well. Again, probably the worst of the worst in terms of scenes that you're going to. Yeah. How do you shake off the jobs after you've been out to a scene or a job? 
Uh, well, I was having this conversation this morning actually with someone. Um, I used to yeah say like most coppers that oh you can't let it bother you because you got to be able to turn up to work the next day. Mm. And I think that's a bit of um, you know to me when I look back at it, I think it was probably me trying to make myself feel better about the fact that I would deny emotion and try and not get caught up in all that stuff and just think of it as a job and then walk away at the end of the day. Um, and that's what I was like. I, like it didn't – I never thought twice about like the guy on the yacht that didn't make it. I never questioned anything about it. I never – sort of look back at it and think, you know, did I do something good, bad? Was it, you know, should I be sad? Should I shed a tear? It was just, that was that job. It's done. It's over. Moving on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that that is the right way it should be done because I don't think that it's healthy to totally ignore the fact that, you know, when you're trying to do CPR on someone on a yacht, and there's seawater splashing around you and vomit and whatever, and people from the other crew looking on saying, please save my mate. I don't think it's healthy just to ignore the fact that that's pretty sad, you know? Um, And I think that's why we end up, coppers end up with PTSD is because they deny that normal emotional reaction to something that's really shit. Do you think, though... This might be a bit of a conversation down the track, but do you think that if yeah. you had regular counselling, mandatory counselling, um, and I don't know if you did have regular counselling, but do you think that that would have assisted um, either not getting PTSD uh, or? I think talking about it in the right format would have to help. Um, we never got any formal counselling we very rarely did a debrief with the boss or supervisors because there was always another job coming up where you never had a chance or the time to do it or we sat around the mess room eating pizza and drinking coke waiting for the next job but telling black humor jokes or comparing the worst job we ever had that's not healthy discussion so i think talking about it in the right forum like a psychological debrief or something like that would have to help. But again, um, you've got to be willing to do it. Mm. Um, And that all depends on your employer, I suppose, because back then if I had said, you know, to the senior officers in the police force that I had, difficulty sleeping at night because I can't stop thinking about this person that we couldn't save. The no would question whether I should be operating on the helicopter. I dare say I would last about five minutes before I was grounded. So, you know, things have changed now for the better, um, thank God. Um, but, yeah, proper counselling and proper discussions about trauma and emotion has to help. I can't. I, I can't see any situation where would, you wouldn't benefit from it. Why did you leave the police force and join the AFP? Uh, depend. There's two answers to that. At the time, I um, 
just decided to chase another employment and go overseas and do some peacekeeping and earn some money. Mm. Um, but the real answer now, uh, the look back at it, is I very quickly after that rescue of the guy in Bastrate lost my interest in flying and really did lose my interest in doing anything like that. And um, a friend of mine who used to work in the helicopter with me had joined the AFP and he said, why don't you come to the AFP and with a bit of luck, they might send you overseas um, somewhere and you can do some peacekeeping in Solomons or Timor or something like that. So then I applied. So was it just be- um, Sorry, yeah. Cam, was it because that last job of the rescue was so horrific in terms of the weather, was so gnarly? Look, look, it was horrific. I look back and think, yeah, that was terrible, but I don't think I ever really analysed it that much and thought, you know, uh, you know, I, I mean, there was a few seconds during that rescue where I was absolutely shit scared, um, but you keep motoring on. But I never really sort of reflected it that way. I just, I didn't. And why know did you lose your interest then? Why I lost my interest in flying. Um, I just lost interest. It was like okay. I went to work not long after that, and I thought I can't be bothered flying. I'd rather sit in the office. Um, okay. You know, that's a complete change to what I was like when I first got there. They said, you know, we've got a couple of hours to fly or a couple of jobs you want to go flying, and we'd run out there and fly all day if we could. And then it got to the point where I just didn't enjoy it. There was no enjoyment in flying at all, which, as you know, Mm -hmm. is a sign of post-traumatic stress disorder is a a loss of enjoyment. But I didn't know that at the time. A few moments later... So thank you. Okay. You're loving this so Roger we're... stuff, aren't you? Oh, so funny. I do it to all my um like the military guys that come on and stuff, because they all just revert to it. So I just can't yeah. help it. I love it. I think it's funny. <laughs> and coffee, <copy>, copy. Um... <laughs> yeah, I know you're doing coffee too as on purpose. I think it's funny. Yeah. No. Um, for those of you who don't know, we had to restart the the podcast. We've had some technical issues. Um so if it's a bit disjointed, that is why. And um the copy and Roger are the text messages that we're sending to each other. Um, okay, so where were we up to? Solomon Islands. Why did you uh, leave AFP? Oh, yeah. Oh, we okay. did that one. We did why we, why oh, you left. Yeah. yeah, just the loss of enjoyment. I didn't know at the time yeah. what it was, but I now know it's you know, part and parcel of PTSD. You did the Solomon Islands, Timor, Black Saturday, and the Christchurch earthquakes. All pretty yep. full on stuff. The Solomon Islands was the riots, is that right? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, for the two thousand and six riots after the elections. Yep. Okay. So, what role did the AFP have over there? Well, the AFP was sort of um, they were a capacity building, so they were trying to rebuild the police force for the Solomon Islands. Um, it's sort of lost its way, I suppose. There was a lot of tribal infighting. I mean, most coppers in the Solomon Islands at that time didn't even turn up to work. Um, there was no leadership. They weren't getting paid. Um, some of them didn't have uniforms or boots to wear. So um, the AFP was tasked by the government to go in under the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands, which they call Ramsey. And the AFP's job was to rebuild or capacity build the police force back to what it was or should be. 
How long were you over there for? Um, we did four months stints. We'd go for four months and come back. Um, I ended up doing um, a few uh, shorter ones, but more. So I, I started, did my first tour there in 2006, but my last one would have been in the end of 2010. So I probably went about maybe a dozen times over that, that period. So I don't know what total, but, you know, uh, I flew in there a lot of times over the, over the years. Mm. Timor, talk to me about what the AFP and what you were doing over in Timor. So the Timor, Timor was very similar. Um, there was two parts to Timor. There was the United Nations were in Timor at the time. So the federal police would provide police to the United Nations Um civilian police force so that was under the control of the united nations and on top of that they were also helping not particularly rebuild the police force but there was um afp members over there uh working in east timor or east uh, the training in their academy and really just helping capacity build as well so if you're in the AFP and you got deployed to Timor, you're either be under the UN or the um, you know, similar type capacity building as the Solomon Islands. But we deployed there in a response group after they uh, tried, there was an assassination attempt on um, the Prime Minister and the President uh, in 2000. I can't even remember what year it was. So we were the emergency response to that. Okay, so you were in the thick of it there. I ask everybody that I've had on that has been to Timor, were you there for the John Farnham and Kylie concert? No, didn't see them. Uh, oh, didn't get you to see missed a concert. it. No, <laughs> no. I only spent about, actually, I spent about six weeks there. They wouldn't let us leave until um, the government, both governments were happy that we wasn't going to be in trouble. So, um. I did write in my book probably the riskiest thing about East Timor my six weeks there was getting some disease from a tattoo shop, but I never got a tattoo like all my oh, other friends good. did. So, Did they all um, get a disease? They all ended up with hep C or something? Oh, well, look, you know, I, I sort of smelt a rat when um, I was a bit sus when the, uh, the tattoo guy was working in a broom closet underneath the bar. That was his <laughs> tattoo studio. So I said, I'm not going in there. No way. <laughs> I am a bit concerned, though, that other colleagues that you're working with actually decided that that was a good idea. <laughs> well, they're, they're still alive. They've survived it. <laughs> now, Black Saturday, for people that don't know, was um, uh, what year are we in for Black Saturday? Black Saturday, that one was 2009, from memory. Horrific. I know we've just recently had more horrific bushfires, but this was very horrific. I just read that the guy's about to get let out of prison too. They'll purposefully oh, okay. lit. Is the Churchill one? Yeah, yeah, so there was a different fires that period. There was, I think that's the Churchill guy. He lit fires down at Churchill. He completely destroyed the suburbs of Churchill, which is a little country town. I'd actually gone there for 10 days. So I first looked at the fires down at Churchill, and that, that guy, that fire just annihilated that town and, you know, Killed, I'm not sure how many died in that one, 
I think I think it was uh, eleven. Um, it was or just horrific. That I read. But, horrific. Yeah, but then we got sent up north to Marysville, which was not deliberately lit, or part of it wasn't, and that was just the whole town of Marysville was just a moonscape, um, and you could smell, you know, you could smell, you know, death and bodies everywhere. It's just disgusting. Um, but yeah, that was just surreal. It was, um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd never, you know, I'd been to smaller fires before and smaller crime scenes before, but that was just um, beyond belief. Even two weeks later, there's still trees smouldering and on fire. I remember driving up to King Lake, up to the hills, um, in the middle of the night one day, and you know this is at least fourteen days later, and the treetops are still on fire. Amazing. Hmm. I think um, over a hundred people or something lost their lives in that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. A lot across the state. And houses galore and were lost. Like Marysville was just devastated. That was that was pretty much gone. Whole town. How did that compare in terms of? And I know they're very different, but you then went on to the Christchurch earthquake, which was, which was, um, I don't even know how you would describe it. Equally it horrific, I suppose. Devastating. Um, yeah. The weird thing was that the news coverage here about the fires was total. You, if you were sitting in your lounge room and you're watching the news, you saw all the towns and the devastation. But when you when we went to um, Christchurch, we'd only seen a few snippets on the news. And quite honestly, it looked like there were three buildings burnt. I mean, it'd fallen down. One was a TV station and a few died in that. And there were two other buildings, but I remember being bussed into the city, and there was just there was hardly anything left standing. There were devastation everywhere, but they had the government had fenced off the whole town of Christchurch and not let the media in there. Um, why? Because why it was too they... hard. It was too hard to keep control of them if they got let loose, and. When you've got limited resources, you don't want to be babysitting your cameraman. Yeah, that's true. While he wanders around, you know, filming the streets. So they kept them um, outside of fence and allowed them into certain sites to film for the news. So when I got there, I thought, oh, it's, you know, it must be reasonably bad they're sending us, but I couldn't believe the amount of devastation of that town that was not shown on the TV. It was just the place was annihilated. There was streets that were had nothing but mountains of bricks, where buildings, three, four, five story buildings used to be. You know, there was cracks in concrete. There was cars that had been swollen by this thing called liquefaction, which is where the old um, riverbed comes to the surface. Um, It's like when you lay concrete and the water sits on the top, and so you get more water. It sort of seeps to the top. Well, this happens when the ground shook in Christchurch. This the old water from this the creek bed that it was built on come to the surface, swallowed whole cars. It filled houses with this grey liquid. There was um, 
you know, cracks in the road that you could fit a person into. And none of that was, I never saw that on the news until I got there. I've got an aerial photo somewhere that actually shows the city almost flat. And that's pretty much what it was like. But no one actually, no one else actually saw that on the news or anything. They just didn't televise it. So, what was your role over there? Were you doing search and rescue? No, we had USAR teams or urban search and rescue teams, which is part of the fire brigade to do that. Um, the initial deployment just before me, they would actually help those guys out and make sure that the same amount of USAR people going into a scene to bring out people or bodies was the same amount that would come out. Uh, we were there because, believe it or not, even though the town was devastated, some arseholes were going there, driving there and start burglarising houses and shops. And looting. God, they're tickets, and, aren't they? Yeah. The, the police force, there was, I, I can't remember the exact figures, but there was at least 60 or 70% of the police in Christchurch either had a, a house that was destroyed or their family um close relative had a house that was destroyed or someone from their family who had died or they knew someone that had died. So they needed a police force to police the town. So we went over to do that and what we would do is they would fly some um, New Zealand police from the Northern Ireland, um, Auckland or Wellington, and they'd stick them in a police car in Christchurch with us. So we would end up being... Um, the local police for the the shift. That was the so majority what, of our work. So, what happens then in terms of jurisdiction? If you have to arrest someone for looting, for example, like, yep. do you guys get a special sworn in exempt? Like, what happens? Because obviously, at some point, they've got to go to court. Those people. We were sworn in. Um, mm. We were sworn in by the commissioner there to give us the police powers, but our role with, say, an arrest or some sort of an offence was to do a statement, and that statement was to be tendered in court as the evidence that I would have given if I was there. Right. But the poor police officer from New Zealand that we work with had to do all the paperwork (laughs) and had to follow the case through because a couple of weeks later we were were at home. It made from a very uneasy sort of partnership when you've got Two highly experienced police officers that don't even live in a town have to police it, and one poor bug has to do all the work. Yeah, so <laughs> he's like, just let that one go. I don't want to do the paperwork. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's funny. Um, you moved to and transferred to major crimes, which is child protection, drugs, people smuggling, counter-terrorism. It's a fairly broad... Yeah. Um, uh, mandate in that Yeah, unit. that's the AFP. But these were all different sort of uh, teams. So although the headquarters here is only a small building, and, you know, there's a number of teams and, and, and teams have a role. So the initial, uh, when I first went there, I think yeah, 2011 I went there, I started on the crime team and then very quickly went to people smuggling, uh, investigating people smugglers. Um, at the height of that, you know, the boat people crisis, with, you know, um, people coming out of the Middle East, um, travelling to Indonesia and then getting on an illegal boat to come to Australia I or Christmas Island. So that, 
I spent a couple of years on that. Yeah. Mm, I interviewed an Afghan refugee. So then I transferred over. into. Sorry. I interviewed a, an Afghan refugee who yep. did that route, came through Pakistan from, he fled to Pakistan because ISIS was after him. Um, and then they people smuggled him through, yep. uh, I think it was Malaysia and um, into Indonesia. Yeah, Malaysia and, would have been, yeah. 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 So, and yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I won't he go into the it, system because I won't tell anyone, don't want to tell anyone listening what they have to do. But yeah, that was the general route, Pakistan and then Malaysia, then yeah. down. Um, across on a speedboat to Indonesia yeah. and then a very poorly built or um, renovated fishing boat crammed with people to try and get to Indonesia. But it wasn't, we weren't particularly working on the people that would do it. they get on the boat. We were after the people making the money. Smugglers. Well, he said that. Yeah, he smugglers. Would walk and through... there was a whole network of them. Well, he said he was walked through the airport by an airport official. Uh, can either confirm or deny. Yeah, well, he confirmed, happened, so we won't just, that's all I will say. That's what he they said. Had, look, look, they have a system. They had a system. Uh, money was paid to various people to get them through. And, mm. um, you know, that's how was, some people operated. Yeah, look, having never obviously done that sort of work that you've done, I found it eye-opening in terms of... Um, the sophistication of it. Um, oh, it's a well-oiled, it, yeah, well-done plan. It's and you, when you think about it, the amount of boats that were coming through with you know thirty, forty people on there was three or four a day for how long? That's mm. you know there was a lot of people coming through, making, paying a lot of money, and the smugglers were making an absolute fortune sitting in their, you know, really nice accommodation. Or their houses mm. in Indonesia, while these people are on this boat that probably um, wouldn't have made it in most cases. And I think, unfortunately, got no idea how many people got on a boat and how many people didn't make it at all. Well, he ended up not getting on that final leg because it was so dangerous. He refused to hop on. And so he must have been a smart years. one, but a lot of people did. A lot of people yeah. did, and a lot of people didn't make it. Yeah, terrible. The, the most. Yeah, the worrying thing is there's a little beach on Christmas Island on the south side of the island. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of woman, but you've got to get there by four-wheel drive. And it's this beautiful postcard-looking beach with palm trees and fresh white sand and beautiful crystal water. And up on the beach is nothing but toiletries trees and thongs and people's belongings that are washed up there. And you think, where does that come from? Mm. It's covered in it. Dolly Beach, actually. It's called Dolly Beach, and it's just littered with stuff. It's just amazing. And you think, oh boy, you know, that's got to come from somewhere. How long were you in that unit for? I spent two years there, and um, yeah, most of my work would have been interviewing people that had come off boats. I'd spend mm. the day with them, um, myself and a partner, and take about six hours or five to six hours to write a statement. So I've got to know a lot of them um, over the years and, you know, some of them had reasons for being here. Some of them I don't think really had reasons, but um, it was a real eye-opener. 
it's a yeah, side of the you know policing that I never thought never thought anything about. You ended up leaving the AFP because you had uh, and were diagnosed with PTSD. Yep. How did that diagnosis come about? Um, <clears throat> I finished work. It was a sort of busy day. I was at court for the day, and um, I'd gone to a pub. I finished a bit early, so I went to a pub and met a couple of other coppers. Had a few beers and my wife rang and said, you better get home because you're coaching the local basketball team. So I jumped on a train and um, I got on, I wanted to get home at Richmond Station and um, everything was pretty normal. Um, uh, and what happened was I sort of sort of had a bit of a micro-sleep and woke up not realising where I was. And then I hit this panic button and my heart rate went through the roof and the respiratory rate was through the roof. Um, And then there was tears and shaking of the leg and the hands. Had no idea what what was going on. And this this happened for a couple of minutes and then it quietened down and it kept coming back. And I had absolutely no idea what was going on until I finally got myself off the train, um, contacted police welfare people and they they give my wife some advice about what to do. I ended up having a friend of the family who was a psych nurse come and see me to calm me down. The next day I went to the doctors and the doctor just looked at me and said, I know exactly what it is. Um, let's get you fixed. And that was the at the end of my that was the last day I worked. What was the what was the journey or what was the process once you had that diagnosis? Because I'm assuming that um, you didn't want to finish work. No, um, you know, I, I remember when I first went and saw a doctor, I said, "Oh, yeah, you know, I want to be back to work in six months," and that never happened. Um, you know, uh, sort of. To start off with, it's not by choice. You know, you know they're not going to they're not going to take you back, or you know, the career that you once had, where you're quite active and got out and you know um, arrested people or did warrants or um, took people to court would stop, and then you'd end up having a desk job. That's if you could handle that, I suppose. Um, but it got to the point where I couldn't. I couldn't even walk into a police station or an office. Um, I couldn't make a decision to save my life. Um, uh, I couldn't walk into a cafe. It was too noisy. Um, I had no motivation. There was no energy. Um, I had a huge temper. Um, I'd break into tears just because of the noise, you know. Um, so really, at the end of it, there's no choice. But unfortunately, we have this really shitty system in this country where you know, the health and welfare and uh, management of police and, you know, fireys and ambos and emergency services personnel is managed by insurance companies, you know, under the work cover system. So, you know, and work cover's all underwritten by those insurance companies who are there to make money, not to pay out money. So, 
you, you know, as, as a couple, when you get diagnosed with PTSD, you end up in the work cover system having to fight a, an insurance company to get medical treatment. So I had to fight the insurance company that covered Victoria Police and their work cover for two and a half years. I think that battle went on and ended up in court twice. And eventually they settled and said, look, we'll cover your injury. That's but appalling, it's not without, considering, like, y- I mean, yes. you're, I mean, you're diagnosed with that. The last thing that you need to be doing is going through courts. And I'm assuming they probably didn't pay out anything for those two and a half years. Well, I think, you know, with most, most insurance companies have um, investors that want to see uh, profits. And, you know, as an insurance company, the only way you're going to make profit is to take more money in um, insurance than what you're paying out. Mm. So it's unlike, it's not like um, DVA with the Defence Force. It's, you know, there's not a bucket of money being put into this DVA to help coppers when they get crook or ambos. It's it's a, a private system managed by insurance companies who don't Do want to pay I, out. I interviewed um, a gentleman who is an ex uh, Victorian copper, and he um, yep. founded Code Nine. Have you heard of Code Nine? Oh, uh, yes, yep. Yeah. yeah so they do. Yeah. For those that don't know, they do. Um, uh, it's ex member, ex police force members that are providing um, emotional support, I suppose you could say, to yep. people that are struggling with PTSD. You know, someone that understands the job that can help support them, and. Yep. Um, Mark Thomas is his name. Yeah, and yeah, I, I was ast- I was astounded to find out that there was no counselling services for post employment. Yeah, so and I found that out the hard way, probably the same way as Mark Thomas did. Mm. Um, you know, my wife, the first thing she did when I came home from that day in an absolute mess is contact um, the police psychs, as in Victoria Police, even though I hadn't been in Victoria Police for a while. That's what she thought I should do, she should do. Mm. And they couldn't speak to me because I was I had left the police force. Um, the unfortunate thing about that is when she contacted the AFP welfare, well, they're up in Canberra on down in Melbourne. So their only option was to take me to a psych ward, a ward and I wasn't going to go because I just didn't want to. But thank God through um, a, another chief commissioner come along some years after that called um, Graham Ashton. And Graham Ashton actually found out about that and overturned that decision. So now if I am in dire straits and need to talk to welfare or a police psychologist, I can make Victoria Police and they'll provide one. But that's only oh, because that's of what good. Graham Ashton did. Yeah, so Graham Ashton overturned that. Now, up until that day where Graham Ashton did that, I could never access the Victoria Police psychologist, even though I served 20 years for them. That's really good. But that's only half that's the battle, getting help. Someone's got to pay for this. Now, you've got to, you know, you're now You've got PTSD, your career's over. You are now in the hands of an insurance company to determine how much money you're going to earn 
while you get better and who's going to pay for the treatment. So for two and a half years, I was funding most of that myself um, until another commissioner came in along in the AFP and said, no, that's not right. So they continued to pay me. So I was, even though I had a huge battle with the, the insurance company, there were people in high positions that eventually would hear about what was happening and do something about it. Um, and gradually over the years, those things have changed. You know, but unfortunately, there are still coppers out there and paramedics and um, firemen and volunteer firefighters and SES people and all these emergency responders that the first responders that are getting PTSD and have to battle an insurance company, a private insurance company, to get help. And that still happens now. What's the solution? I think Queensland have got it right now. They do what Canada does. If you're a police officer or emergency services personnel and you get diagnosed with PTSD, it's automatically accepted as being part of your job. And the insurance company would have to battle you to say no. But that doesn't exist in Queensland, I believe. The Canadians have been doing it for years. Does that then make it a financial lengthy court battle for the person that's diagnosed? Well, no, because, you know, if um, a police officer comes down with PTSD, the work cover authority has to accept it and treat them. But then, then it actually you just said takes that, they could that go battle away. But didn't you just We're, say that then they have to go after you individually? No, no, they would have to prove that it wasn't part of work. And I don't know uh, the insurance company is going to try and do that. Well, that's it's been very hard to prove. Very hard. You know, I mean, my battle existed because I had worked for two police forces. So one insurance company blamed the other police force and the other insurance company, the Victoria Police, blamed the AFP. But that doesn't leave you with someone sharing the burden. That leaves you with a financial burden and the burden to earn wage, look after your family and get healthy, whereas the insurance companies don't pay anything. So you've got to then go to a lawyer and say, okay, which one am I going to take to court? And the lawyer's going to say, well, we don't know which one we'll win against, but we'll give it a try. And then that's a two-year battle. And most of the time, from what I understand, talking to other people through the same position, is that most of these insurance companies won't take it into the courtroom. They'll settle beforehand. They'll delay it and delay it and delay it. And I believe they delay it because it's the easiest way for the for them to get out of paying because eventually, if the sick person will eventually, if they get their way, the insurance company will give up. So well, I can go person, and talk on days. So the yeah. sick person will give up against the insurance company? Eventually it'll get, you know, if they've got PTSD and they've got to go to court, I mean... There are plenty of coppers out there and paramedics with PTSD had to fight for it and would probably give up. It's a huge battle, especially when you've got mental health issues in the first place and then you've got to battle an insurance company who's got lawyers on retainer. Um, mm. It's David and Goliath. Yeah. What was your um, – I mean, you mentioned that your wife called the Victorian police and then the AFP. Yeah. Talk to me about the impact of that diagnosis on your family situation. 
Yeah, boy. Um, you know, the sad thing about this is when I walked off the train down the, the ramp at the railway station, my kids were in the car and they usually sit, I think they're about, actually I'll try and work out, um, one was about six and one was about eight or even younger actually. And they usually wind down the window and sit on the door sill, half hanging out of the car, waving to dad as he comes down the ramp, cheeky little buggers. And they looked at me and started waving, and then all of a sudden they stopped and went back in the car and sat in their seatbelts because I was just a mess. And I remember standing outside the car. I couldn't even open the door. I, I knew it was my car. I knew my wife. I could see the kids crying in the back. And my wife is saying, what's, what's wrong? And I, I remember saying, oh, I can't do it anymore. Had no idea what I was talking about. And she had to open the door and I got in. And I still think about that, those, you know, the poor kids and my wife seeing that, like their dad, absolutely in a mess. We had to drop them off at, at family, friends, and one of the neighbours while a psych nurse had to come and calm their dad down. You know, the poor family, they, they actually, I reckon they cop a worse deal um, than what I have because, you know, I've, been able to eventually get um, help and get therapy and see people about it and learn how to live with PTSD. They don't get any, you know, there's no government assistance to help them out. Um, nothing. So they really do bear the brunt of it and still to a certain degree do today because you know, there's no magical cure or a tablet you can take that's going to make PTSD go away. Well, you're stuck with it. And that's the way your life's going to be until the day you pass on. So, you know, you've got to learn to live with the PTSD and the symptoms and, and you've got to try and help your kids and your wife understand it. And sometimes it just doesn't work that way. So the poor families, I think they cop a real world deal. But Have you they're not insured either. Have you spoken to your kids about that day? Um, I was, you know, I, I used to think the kids didn't really understand much about it um, until I was, I was lucky that the person at AFP, Federal Police Welfare, um, I'll say her name, it's Janine, I won't say her surname, she'll be so embarrassed. She reached out and said, look, I'm going to try and get some treatment for her and the AFP are going to pay for it which was amazing. And through, she pulled a few strings and got me into what's called Ward 17. And um, any military person will tell you that Ward 17 is a psych ward for the military. Um, it's like a nickname, I think. Um, and that was at the Austin Hospital. And they gave me a book to, aimed at kids to bring home. And I remember sitting on the bed and I had my daughter on one side and my son on the other side and I was reading this book. And the little buggers, when I t turned the page, I'd gone through these symptoms. Sometimes your dad does this. Sometimes your dad does this. You know, gets angry or has got a short temper or no patience or doesn't want to talk. And and my daughter, who was six at the time, said, that's not you. You don't have that one, Dad. But you have all the others. I go, God, they understand more than what I ever thought. <laughs> so, Trust I, kids' brutal honesty to bring you, you know, dad away. I didn't know what to say. I thought, yeah, you're right. Uh, I don't have that one. Um, yeah, but I have the others. Um, so, you know, I, that was 
that was the way of opening and starting up the conversation with the kids. Um, I do I do have a joke with them nowadays. Um, you know, my son's now 15 years old, going on 50, and we have a joke about Dad always goes to see the psychologist, and Dad's a bit nutty, and that's why he does strange things, and um, we have a laugh about it. But it, yeah, I think it's a constant work in progress for kids and in your family and your wife. Um, you know, it's just you got to work out that new way to live and that new way to handle things and, you know, man yourself with as much knowledge as you can about PTSD and symptoms and how to avoid them without locking yourself in your room. Um, yeah, but geez, I just feel sorry for, you know, the families of military and emergency services people that just cop it. And yeah, the thing, they've done nothing to deserve it. The thing that strikes me with people that I've discussed PTS with, I've done a number of. Um, I interviewed Narelle Fraser. Do you know Narelle? Yep. Narelle, yep. Yeah, yep. so ex homicide detective. And I also interviewed um, Grant Edwards, the ex commander in AFP. Yep. As well. Yep. And. I oh, know Grant Mark, too. Yeah, and uh, I thought you might. And then um, Mark, obviously Mark Thomas. And I, I, anyway, I've done a, I've done a number. And the thing that no one ever directly says, but reading between the lines when you talk about the impact of the family and you know all that sort of stuff, you sort of say, well, it's not fair, and they're amazing, and they sort of have to pick up the pieces. There's an underlying level of guilt that the person that has PTSD has, which. I think is a natural human emotion to have as a result of it. And I don't know how you would ever remove that away from the situation because it is a human emotion, but it's not something that you can help. Guilt is pretty, it's a pretty powerful thing, guilt. It's, Mm. um, but I'm, I'm hearing it from you, from you, the subtext of hearing it from you in terms of putting it on the family and the kids. And I, I, I wish there was a magic wand and you could just be like, that guilt's taken away, you know, the PTSD's taken away. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not with everything else that you're sort of combating, you don't need that as well. You know, people don't need that as well. I do it a broad broad brush. People don't need that guilt as well. That they put on themselves. um, You know, I think, uh, you know, guilt, the self-worth takes a huge burning about, you know, um, why has this happened to me? Not, mm. you know, why, why, why me? It's more like I thought I was stronger than this, so then it shouldn't happen to me. And it because it is, I wasn't as strong as what I thought, then the, sort of that sort of bleeds into a bit of failure and self-worth issues. And then you look at what you've done to your family and you think, Christ, I didn't deserve this. Um, it's It really is just that, that added not pressure, but uh, that additional layer that really, I think, can run away. You can really get yeah. um, down the rabbit hole, overtaken by guilt, and that then that can stop that can stop you getting better um, if you've you riddled with guilt. Um, I mean, there is a way through it, um, but. You know, there is no magical wand, and it's not. I remember a psych saying, you know, 
the first cycle. So, you know, in six months, you want to be back at work, you'll be back at work, Cameron. And then I remember another one saying, you know, two years, I'll be back in two years. Now, eight years later, I can't walk in through a police station door. Years later, I'm still battling it day to day. It'd be great if there's that magic pill. But unfortunately, there's not. Um, it's a matter of, you know, getting your help and trying to live with the symptoms. And I, I say avoiding those situations that, you know, um, become symptomatic or, 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 you know, make the symptoms happen. They're, you know, driving past those places that, you know, remember as being traumatic or, or, or trigger memories. But, you know, it, it, you, you can't avoid it. Um, you know, as a copper, triggers are everywhere. It's not like the military where triggers are limited to, you know, what you see on TV or overseas. It's, you know, the trigger for a copper might be down the street or it might be the railway line or the freeway they travel on every day or, you know, seeing a, hearing a siren or seeing an ambulance. They're everywhere and you can't avoid them. You've got to, if you want to avoid them, you've got to lock yourself in a room and that's not going to help anyone. Got to get out there. You've got to work through them. I'm sort of rambling on here, but um, have you ever looked into any alternative treatments like the um, psilocybin or the ayahuasca treatments and stuff like that? Look, I've read about them all. Um, I've tried not the alternative ones. I've tried most of the mainstream um, ones, mm. and some. Some work, we're all different, and some work for me and some don't. And I've got friends that have tried that magnetic therapy stuff that worked for them. I can't yep. see it working for me. I would love to get on some hallucinogens. I can tell you that now. I've been a policeman for 35 years. wasn't allowed to have that stuff. <laughs> It'd be nice to have it. Um, so if any doctors out there, I'll, I'll nominate now as a guinea pig. Um, yeah, look, uh, I think uh, – and, and, yeah, that's part of the process, isn't it? Is is learning as much as you can and giving stuff a try. Mm. I do know about most of them. Some are interesting. I recently read a book about um, MDMA and the yep. hallucinogen that comes from the back of a frog, um, some Mexican frog that they're synthesised, and you know, it sounds interesting. And I can thank God. I think Victorian government's just legalised it. I'm not sure if it's a st uh, I federal think thing, but I know it's I think federal. I saw, yeah, like, well, yeah, it might be I'm, a federal decision actually. I would say I think it's federal, but I'm no expert. Yeah, so it would have to be. It would have to functioning be. moron over here. No, it wouldn't be the bloody Victorian government alone that legalised it. I can say it might have to be a federal <laughs> thing. Have to be. Um, yeah, and that, and that's good because that might be exactly what some people need. Yeah. Yeah. You've written the book, Cameron. You've got the book out now, 10 feet tall and yep. not quite bulletproof. What's next? Uh, uh, another book, I think. Fantastic. Um, motivation's a bit lacking at the moment. Yep. Um, but I think I will get there. I've got to just force myself to do it. Um, so that's in the wind. Uh, I've actually started. That's an, att an attack out of Endeavour Hill, Hills on two coppers by a young kid um, who got misled down the wrong path and radicalised. Oh, so, so this is a true story. True story? 
Yep, yep. True story. Endeavour Hills in 2014 um, pulled a knife in two coppers. Um, and it's about how he got radicalised and the result of that. Unfortunately, he got killed um, on the day. Um, and it's also about the fact of the two police involved and the family, his family as well. So hopefully that'll I'll finish that soon or at least get started on it again and try and finish it soon. Apart from that, um, I'm now retired. Uh, and I spend, you know, as long as I get time with my family and I'll be happy with that. Yeah. And then you're going to buy a Winnebago and go around Australia. <laughs> I wouldn't mind doing that. <laughs> when the kids finish school, I'm out of here, I think. How long do they have to go? Uh, four years. It'd be nice to do what you do and get away. It'd be great. But right now it's limited to a few days camping every now and then. Which, yep, we're doing so. Four years gets you to another election. That's <laughs> what a whole, it's a whole term. Yeah, yeah, but we just had one and that didn't sort of really turn out so well, did it? Oh, I think, you know. <laughs> anyway, let's end it there, Cameron, because I think we're going to have this conversation offline. <laughs> yes, I think so. I don't want to turn it political. Thanks, Cameron. Lovely speaking with you. Thank you. So yeah. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 